Welcome to the Wildlife Explorer, a podcast by Essex Wildlife Trust, where we aim to inspire you with our work to protect the wildlife and wild places of Essex and what you can do to help wildlife wherever you live. Today's episode of the Wildlife Explorer is all about trees and we're going to be joined by special guest James Canton, who's the author of the BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, The Oak Papers, where he will be sharing his experiences with one special tree in particular, an aged oak called the Honeywood, which he visited through the seasons and in all weathers. He'll be telling us about what he learned from sitting underneath the ancient boughs and how we can all be more intimately connected with nature. We'll also be joined by some special guests from across the Trust, helping you to decide which trees are best to plant in your own garden, the magic of trees in spring, at what point an ancient woodland becomes an ancient woodland, and you can learn more about our very own Tree of Life, situated at our Fingering Hoewick Reserve. It's all coming up on the show. Trees are the lifeblood of our planet. We need them to be able to breathe. They provide habitat for thousands of different species. They help to control floods, capture carbon, replenish soil nutrients. They provide fruit and seeds. They help us build our homes and they provide us with medicine and fuel. But trees in their own right are amazing things to behold. They can live for thousands of years they can grow over 300 feet tall and they have fascinated and humbled humans for as long as we can remember. History is full of stories and poems and legends and each tree is as unique as our own fingerprint. On today's show, we're going to be hearing all about these special beings and our interwoven relationship with them. We're lucky to be joined today by James Canton, whose new book, The Oak Papers, was recently awarded BBC Four's Book of the Week, with The Telegraph calling it an enchanting piece of nature writing and a meditation on finding connection in a disconnected world. He was interviewed by Rich Yates, our Head of Business Development, to talk about the lessons we can learn from the natural world, if only we slow down enough to listen. Very excited to be joined by author and academic James Canton uh, today. Thanks for talking to us, James. You're very welcome, Rich. Welcome to uh, to the Wildlife Explorer. So James is going to talk to us about the Oak Papers, which is published by Canongate. It's based largely in, in Essex, James, isn't it? Yeah, it is very much. Yeah, I mean, it's centred around an 800-year-old oak tree uh, that, that many of you might know, um, called the Honeywood Oak, uh, over on the Marks Hall Estate near Coggershall. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic tree, isn't it? It's a, lots of lots of history. Um, so, so is it is, is the book entirely focused on on the honeywood oak? Well, it's it's kind of I, I think that's the heart of the book in in many ways. So it's it, it began with me um, going and visiting the honeywood oak one day, one one nice uh, May day. Uh, about eight years ago, actually, and um, and I just went and and sat by this amazing tree and and realised that there was so much 
to just sitting by an ancient tree. And, and I really wanted just to learn about the ecosystem as much as anything, just to learn the kind of the, the uh, increase my knowledge as much as anything of the birds and the bees and the, you know, the bugs and the, all the, all these kind of brilliant creatures that, that form um, this amazing habitat uh, of, of beings uh, beneath this, this kind of um, this umbra, if you like, of the oak. So the oak is, is not just a single living creature in itself, but it's also this hugely amazing protective being to literally thousands, hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of, of individual creatures that are living in there. And the Honeywood Oak was just this amazing example of an, of an ancient tree that was just right next to where I was working at the time at, uh, at Honeywood School in Coggeshall. There's a there's a there's a quote that I really like um, mm-hmm. by, by one of the one of the people that you meet in the book, Jonathan Jukes, who is the, yeah. the curator of trees at, at the estate, and he I think it's him that describes um, an ancient oak as like a block of flats, like an enormous block of flats. Yeah, that's right. And and jo- Jonathan was just absolutely central to this book because he was he was working there at the time. He's actually moved on. Is now working for the Woodland Trust. Uh, which is great for all of us, I have to say. Um, but he was just brilliant because he exactly that he knew this this tree. He knew the Honeywood Oak very well, and he's he was actually already in that process of very much kind of guardian to this tree. So he was he, he you know, and he just taught me through the process of of what you what you can do as a as a human to looking after an ancient tree like that. And his knowledge is just incredible. I mean, he's. He is one of the finest naturalists I've ever met, and his knowledge of trees is just outstanding. And he was, but he, but the amazing thing about Jonathan is that, you know, I was this guy turning up saying, "Oh hi, yeah, I teach this this course called Wild Writing, and I, you know, I teach literature and English down the road, and and I'd like to come and just sit next to this this tree at different times of the day and the night, and you know, when it's snowing and raining, and I'd like to do it over the next year or so." And, you know, I mean, he could have just said, ah, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do that. It's a bit complicated and there's, you know, health and safety. And he just said, yeah, sure. That sounds really good, James. And he just allowed me access, um, you know, and the Marks Hall estate were brilliant with this as well. Just allowed me access. So I would just text him when I was thinking of going and I'd go, you know, every few days when I could, you know, fitting in amongst kind of home and work and stuff. And I, but I did, I did this, this thing and I ended up over the next few years, it was, it wasn't just a year. It was kind of two years pretty solidly and then other things got in the way. And, uh, but it was just an amazing experience. And Jonathan was brilliant at, at actually showing me that block of flats notion. You know, he, you know, he yeah, got yeah. me lifted up with our culturalists into the oak, you know, up on ropes and stuff so that I could kind of understand, you know, some of the processes, some of the relationships that exist within this, this amazing tree, you know, for example, between like the, you know, the, the emergence of certain caterpillars and, and the, the young of the blue tits and all these kind of really close relationships that you, you need to understand if you're going to understand anything of, of the life of, of an oak and all its, all its, the inhabitants of that block of flats that it is. And it, so it sort of started off as almost like a uh, an ecology project, James. So just just to just to try and feed, uh, and it sounds like it was a personal project to just understand the the ecology of the of the oak a bit more. But it 
but it then seemed to develop into something um, much more sort of complex in terms of the overall project. Yeah, I think that's really nicely put, Rich. I mean, it was it, there was a genuine sense to it kind of unfolding as a project. So, you know, my background is in is in literature, um, if anything. Uh, you know, I've got a PhD in travel literature, for example, on Arabia. So, uh, you know, I was teaching this 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 course in wild writing, which is, I still do. This master's course at the, the University of Essex, but I didn't have the background, if you like, within the biological sciences, within you know nature studies, within ecology. And, I, and it was essentially it was a kind of project for me to try and develop some of that, those areas of knowledge. Unfortunately, I mean, I did to a certain extent. You know, I now know a little bit more about forest stiletto flies or whatever. But um, but what I w- also did is I sort of turned immediately fairly soon to, to the kind of human stories that then linked around this and and turned to the relationships between oaks and humans that have existed, you know, right through kind of written written history and then into prehistory. So I spent a lot of time starting um, by sitting next to the oak and just observing, which was which reminded me again of, of just the importance of you know silent observation, if you like, to understand. Mm. But then I started going to British Library, you know, exploring, as I say, the kind of if you like the social and cultural relationships between oaks, oaks and us, as I think I often called it. Um, but there was also this amazing story that emerged. You know, almost immediately when I went and spoke to Jonathan, is is he told me this that that within the the grounds around this stunning oak, the Honeywood oak, there used to be mm. around three hundred other oaks of a similar age. You know, and only only about sixty years before, if I'd been standing on that space, there would have been this you know this this ancient woodland there, and that they'd all been cut down apart from the one remaining sole survivor, if you like, is, is the Honeywood Oak. Yeah. And so this, this, this immediately kind of threw a kind of a whole other narrative to, to me being there. And there, it was genuinely, you know, a kind of um, a very impacting kind of emotional mm. feeling once Jonathan started telling this story. And, um, and Jonathan was great at also supporting me, sort of showing me, you know, aspects of this. So, for example, the Marks Hall Estate, they put pigs on to, to clear a certain area of, of, of the woodland and it exposed these, these footprints, if you like, these oak prints of, of some of the ancient trees um, from where they'd been cut right down at the base. And we went yeah. and walked on, and it was a really powerful experience. Was seeing these exposed um, fragments of of what what were once ancient ancient oak trees. So there were so so many layers started emerging in this project yeah. um, that I realised that it, I wasn't going to be able to just write the story as a simple tale of ecology of an oak tree, if you like. And that had been done before anyway. So um, so I started to. I just spent longer and longer, essentially, researching um, more and more aspects of of humans and oaks and our interrelations, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's seems to be lots of there's lots of significance of the oak. There's the sort of shelter, the shade, the sustenance, the building materials, a sort of spiritual dimension. I think one of the other things yeah. in the book that comes through quite strongly, James, is the is the sort of sense of stability and strength 
almost the sort of the longevity of the oak. So I wondered if you could sort of tell us a bit a, a, about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, <clears throat> I think that's the, I think it was Ronald Blythe that I went to see, a kind of amazing, you know, local figure for us all, um, who told me, you know, he said, well, of course, the oak is, is the central figure of, of every village, you know, and this idea that that you had ancient oaks often in the middle of like the village green and this provide a, a physical continuity through time to 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 other generations so that there was this kind of contact with your ancestors through this single living tree and i love that i love that idea i think very much within kind of country societies you get this taking place and you know we can think all over we we all i think we all have kind of local oaks that we probably know and that we know i mean particularly if a family has lived within a certain area they'll know that their that their fathers and their mothers and their grandparents and on and on also were able to sit within beneath that oak tree i mean if you if you look say at the their 800 year old honeywood oak for example you know, we have we have very well documented evidence that 400 years ago, parliamentary parliamentarian troops were actually, you know, camped out beneath yeah. it, you know, in those grounds. And it would have been a big tree 400 years ago. You know, I mean, an 800 year old oak tree is about 30 generations of humans, yeah. something like that. So, you know, you've got this 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 sense of of something living through living longer than in an in, in individual human would ever yeah. do and so this sense of continuity through time i mean i've got a little quote i mean a little section that i could read that probably just sort of summarizes that yeah, please do, sure sure um this is just from the beginning of of uh of the oak papers Wherever oak trees grow around the globe, people have developed a connection to them. Throughout human history, particular oaks have been favoured for their setting, for their age and size. Ancient oaks have always been special. People collect beneath their boughs. They may gather there as a place of significance within the landscape or merely as somewhere to shelter. Whereas we humans are creatures of movement, Oaks are static beings. They do not shift. They are born and they die on the same patch of earth. It is that sure-footedness that is so appealing. Ancient oaks hold a powerful sense of longevity, the sense of security, the sense of attachment to a place across time, enchants us. We are drawn to old oaks. You can stand beneath a grand oak and know that your more distant ancestors did so too. Oaks hold on to the memories of earlier generations. By touching the skin of the oak, it is possible to feel some tentative trace of those that have gone before. Human beings and oaks have lived beside one another as neighbours since the earliest times. And we continue to do so. We no longer need the bodies of oak trees to build our homes or to fuel our fires. And we no longer need acorns to sustain us through hard years and meagre harvests. Yet on some level, 
we still lean on oak trees in ways we do not fully understand. We need them. I love that. I think it's such a compelling start to the to the book, James. I think it really kind of transports. Thanks, Rich. And that 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 sense of independence, I think, is is really is really important. We're obviously the, the trust. We're we're particularly interested in nature connection. And trees trees seem to have a unique power to connect us to nature. Yeah, that's right. I think I think we all um, have probably experienced that sense of of kind of just being calmed by going into the woods. Um, that we we just feel in in a kind of better place, yeah. if you like, however you want to put it. And of, and of course, the truth is that we now have a lot of scientific backing, uh, and you know the way that our, we operate is we kind of need that scientific reassurance, if you like, and we now have. You know, very strong um, examples of, of where scientists have examined the the EEG patterns, the brainwave patterns of people as they move in from green spaces into more urban spaces and how they go into what the scientists call meditative states uh, rather than stressed states when you're in green places. Um, you know, I, I in the book, uh, Oak Papers, I, I spoke to a uh, educational psychologist, as I call him, uh, Dr. Mike uh, Rogerson over at the University of Essex. And they, we've got a, this fantastic unit called the Green Exercise Research Team. And they, they do this, this science of, of showing how, as human beings, as, you know, as creatures, we are in a better place when we're in green spaces. And, and you know, this, one of the simplest ways is, is to go and sit, sit under an oak tree, isn't it? I mean, you, you tend to not feel too stressed out. Whatever is happening in your life, it tends to be improved by going and sitting by an oak tree. And this is, again, something that I kind of recognised um, intuitively by just going and doing so. Um, so I would very much recommend that everyone goes and does that. And if you can, one of the things I discovered was the, was the wonder of just, just climbing in a few feet into the oak tree if you have a local oak that you can kind of go and step into, as I saw it, I think I think that adds even more to the experience. Mm. There's a there's a great quote in the in the book, James. So many writers tell of the wonder of sitting beneath an oak, an old oak tree, but to sit within an old oak mm. is another thing entirely. You step away from being your human self yeah. to becoming someone else, and it, it kind of the the importance of touch that, that that sort of physical contact with the oak seems to be really important yeah that's right I, th I think that's absolutely right and um and again this this was kind of informed by by a certain amount of um of reading you know of reading previous writers and uh previous um kind of historians if you like as well of uh, who kind of guided me along this path to recognizing this this strong kind of relationship between humans and oaks that has emerged into it as i say into kind of a mythological kind of kind of context and we now see these this um this other sense in which genuinely um we are able to kind of transform to a certain extent and we and we do you know we we calm we go into a different mind state when we are by oak trees, uh, you know, when we are in green spaces, when we are in woodlands. 
Um, it's uh, it's not it's you know we it's it's brilliant that we have the science to back it up, but but I think we've always known this. You know, I mean, I would I'm quite a strong advocate of the argument that uh, if we go back to a certain ways that are prehistoric ancestors lived you know if we can do that then i think we'll get to a better relationship both with uh, the natural world around us um, but we'll feel better while we're doing it as well we'll, we'll actually yeah. have that as you say a kind of natural nature connection once we start to recognize that we are just another species of being individual though we may be but that's all we are on this earth you know and and as soon as we start recognizing that and i think you can start moving on you can start dealing with things a little bit better with things like climate emergency climate change issues you know but that's it's just this fundamental kind of mindset that we have to recognize about the um the value of being being part of nature as we are i'm really sort of taken by that james it's almost like a a lingering evolutionary need to to be to be near trees and and to and to climb trees as well. And there's a there's a moment in the book that I is one of my favourite episodes where um, you're you're up in a tree and you hear voices. You can hear human voices, and there's a sort of it's it's almost comical, but it's almost kind of it's quite poignant at the same time. You you decide to climb down from the tree. Um, because you're not sure what the people uh, would make of you of, of, of a sort of a grown man um, being caught up in a tree, um, and I just I think that for me that's yeah. it's it communicates a lot um, that particular episode. Yeah, it, it's happened um, more recently. I was up in my uh, climbing tree, the the stag-headed oak on Two Oak Hill, as I call it, just locally. Just, just I think it was last week, actually, and I was sitting up there at sunset, and I suddenly thought, oh, just sort of checking there's no dog walkers. And someone else was saying this to me, saying, you know, it is a strange one, isn't it? You, you're allowed to do it as a child, but there's a kind of cultural norm that you break yeah. if, yeah. Uh, as an adult, <laughs> as a grown person, you go and sit in a tree. Um, yeah, maybe we should slightly start working against it perhaps next time um, next time i'm walking and i see an oak I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to 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 look to make sure that you're not you're not hidden hidden within it <laughs> yeah that's right it's it's actually i think if you know i'm not a great uh tree climber um in the sense of getting to the highest boughs my daughter's better my daughter eva's much better at that but um but i just like to get somewhere where i feel comfortable mm. uh you know and then sit there. It's a lovely thing. It's really a lovely thing. Yeah. There's a, there's a few there's a few moments in the book where you're um, where, where you touch the oak and then you, and you hold your hand there and you wait until it you wait until you can feel the tree warm um, from from your touch. And I think yeah. those, those it, that's a really um, there's something sort of really magical there. There's a sort of kind of a transference. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think it's. Uh, yeah, I, I really remember doing that. Not not so much. I, ju I just noticed it one time. Well, I think I think the first time was I was like sitting. There's a little nook kind of round. It, the Honeywood Oak is sort of 28 feet round, so it's you know it's a big tree, and I would kind of sit in this little nook. And I remember my hand being, you know, just 
tucked down beside me against the bark. And I think it was then I'd been sitting there for an hour and I suddenly, and it was freezing cold. I suddenly realized that the bark was warm beneath me sort of thing. And this, that kind of, yeah, as you say, this, this kind of slightly transformative sense. And I think, you know, for me, that, that kind of process is part of understanding something of, you know, these figures like the green man, the green woman, green children that run through mythology, uh, really the set the sense of a kind of humanized form a sort of a, a dryad if you like some sort of tree spirit uh in you know human form that runs you know right through our you know our literatures across the, across wherever mm. oaks grow you know this 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 comes in and you see this and it and yeah and there, there seems to be something of that you know and, and obviously once you start going and sitting by oak trees and climbing into them, you can start to imagine this sense of kind of a, a, of some sort of connection uh, on a on a kind of on a I don't know how to put it. We don't even have the words on a deeper yeah. level of some kind, whatever that means. You know, um, it as I say, I think it I think it does drive from um, a prehistoric um, importance to humans of of trees and woodland areas and. To be to be fair, for the hunter gather a lot. It was the glades. It was yeah. the kind of little open sections amongst woodland. They were, they seemed to be absolutely key, and of course they were absolutely key to the early farmers as well because they provided a bit of open space. So you know these and that those are still the areas. If you go to, you just feel blessed to be there. So you know there's there's it it, it runs through. I think it runs through within us. You know we. We might have amazing smartphones and they're fantastic things and we have amazing modern ways, but we haven't lost that those kind of ancient feelings, those ancient aspects to us as well. Thanks, James, for, for talking to us. It's, it's such a fantastic book. I'd highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's published by Canon Gates. Um, it's out on, on hard, hardback and I think the paperback comes out in June. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, June. Fantastic. I, I kind of quite like the idea of a, of a book about oak being printed on on oak, but I imagine that it's probably more likely to be birch or spruce <laughs> or, or something like that. Um, something. Nice yeah, I think it is. I think it's. Yeah, they're very keen to have their kind of uh, yeah renewables. Um, but yeah, it's a lovely idea, isn't it? I have discussed it with someone actually about making paper that we could then I could yeah. write it out by hand. I would. I would because you, of course you can make ink. From uh, oak galls as well. You can, so. you can, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think um, we, we actually have a, a video on Wildlife TV, which is our, um, we, which is our, uh, our sort of the video series that we do, um, where we, we actually make um, ink out of uh, oak, oak galls, as you say. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was the standard way in which you could get ink in this country till about three hundred years, two hundred years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. James, did you um, it'd be be interesting for listeners to hear a, a bit, if you if you can, about the MA in Wild Writing, the the course that you run at the University of Essex? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rich. It's um, I mean, I would say it, but it's an amazing <laughs> it's an amazing course. So it, it's a master's course, and uh, it's centred. And we call it Wild Writing, and that's a term that that a couple of my colleagues came up with when when the course was initiated back in two thousand and nine. Um, and essentially, the course allows everyone to start exploring 
what we call literature landscape in the environment. That's the subtitle of the course. So this kind of interface of, of how humans operate on landscapes and operate, if you like, in, in interaction within, with, the, with the natural environment. So, you know, it incorporates a lot of, uh, of nature writing, um, of writing on, you know, we're particularly interested in the kind of emerging narratives on, on climate change, etc. Um, but yeah, um, it, it, it's very much about walking landscapes. We do a lot of field trips, uh, you know, normally. Um, we'll be going out into landscapes and spaces. So we go to Orford Ness, for example, often. And uh, I was just chatting with someone the other day about trying to get back to Ray Island off off Mersey Island, you know. And we go to various places along, tends to be locally based, um, you know, down to Canvey Island or something like that, uh, and look at various aspects of this this connection between the the literature of a place and then the landscape itself and the, the wider environment. So it's it's a really sort of fun course. It, we, one of our tags is, is uh, an out, the outdoor classroom, so that we very much kind of step out of the seminar room into the kind of wilder spaces of Essex and, and East Anglia in order to, uh, to understand these relations. So, yeah, it's like if anyone's interested, just drop me a line. Uh, I'm easily enough found, I think. So, yeah. And, and it'd be great to be great to get more people on the course. That'd be really good. Brilliant. Thanks, James. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Rich. It's been great. Well, thank you very much, James, for joining us and Rich there. A really fascinating book and lots to learn about our own relationship with trees and nature for sure. So next we're going to move on to our wildlife wows. What you can hope to spot in March, now the weather is getting a bit nicer and we can all spend a bit more time outside. Common toads start the hunt for a mate earlier than most, being active from as early as February. During spring you can begin to hear the familiar croaking of common toads as they look to impress a potential mate. Shortly afterwards you may start to notice their jelly-like spawn filling ponds and lakes. Toad spawn appears in long chains attached to vegetation, so it can be easily differentiated from the large round clumps of frog spawn. And if you do spot a toad or toad spawn, please do let us know, as we're always keen to hear about what our Essex toads are up to, as sometimes they can be a bit elusive. Now, you may want to get a ringside seat for the match of the season. Known for their incredible speed, hares are also well known for their boxing abilities. And instead of the usual competition between competing males, this spring punch-up actually occurs between a female hare snubbing the over-attentive advances of a male hare. Look out for them across fields, coastal marshes and heathlands all across Essex. Recognised for their juicy plump slowberries in winter, the hawthorn tree starts spring with a glorious display of snowy white blossom. Usually menacing in appearance because of their long thick spines, the explosion of delicate white flowers brightens up hedgerows across Essex at this time of year. And finally, a sight hopefully everyone will have started to see is our beautiful wild daffodils. Their brilliant yellow trumpet flower is enough to brighten any day and they magnificently sound the arrival of spring. Popping up to brighten gardens, roadside verges, meadows and woodlands, the sight of daffodils rippling in the spring breeze is a real seasonal treat. 
and if you live locally, you can visit our Warley Place Nature Reserve in Brentwood to witness the spring spectacle in full swing. It puts on quite the show of blooming flowers coming alive with hundreds of daffodils, crocuses, winter aconites and magnolias. The once famous Edwardian garden belonging to Ellen Wilmot is now maintained for nature and has become a hub for various flower species, insects, birds and even bats. And if this reserve isn't on your local patch, you can find your nearest reserve by typing in your postcode into the reserves page on our website. Next on the show, we're going to be joined by Katie Goldsborough, one of our assistant rangers, who's going to be sharing her knowledge and passion for tree planting and helping us to decide what trees we should be planting and where to benefit our wildlife and hopefully avoid getting on the wrong side of your neighbours. Katie Goldsborough and I am the ranger at Aberton Reservoir in Colchester. I'm currently in our lovely young woodland called Wildwood, having a walk around, taking in the signs of spring and trying to see what birds I can find today. Oh, oh, just seen a woodpecker. Sorry, I get very excited. So our Wildwood is over 10 years now. So we have been doing some work in here recently, some thinning work to open up the canopy a bit and let some more light reach the ground. So when we plant, we usually plant a lot of trees close together to increase the number of trees that will survive. And then over time, we will remove a few to limit competition between the trees. And this allows for more biodiversity within the woodland giving space for other ground plants to come up and in turn insects will come and larger species as well and we especially get uh, amazing species of bats here because of our rides and our glades with the insects that come so they come here to feed and it's absolutely amazing because bats are my favorite animal in the entire world so the fact that we get so many amazing species here makes me really happy so here in Wildwood planting began in 2003 so in terms of a nature reserve this is a really young site but we already have so much biodiversity here so the trees in wildwood were planted by volunteers staff and lots of people within the community came to contribute to this amazing project which is the Aberton that we know today so more so now to help tackle climate change we are being encouraged to plant more trees across the whole of the UK. And we can all play a part in this to tackle climate change. But what trees should we be planting and where should we be planting them? If you want to get involved with tree planting, you can either join a local tree planting project with a local conservation charity, uh, with your council, or you can even do this in your own back garden. And we must be mindful when planting in our gardens that the tree that we choose to plant doesn't grow roots or branches that could damage nearby properties. And for larger pieces of land, you might need to seek out planning permission or even have an environmental impact assessment from the Forestry Commission. And if you do not own the land that you want to plant on, you must seek out the landowner's permission. So we also have to be careful 
um, not to plant in certain areas uh, such as protected species sites or rare species sites or archaeological sites as well. So what small trees could you plant in your garden that would best absorb carbon to help tackle climate change and also create lovely new habitats for wildlife? So my best advice is to have a look around your local patch to see what trees are already there. The best way to fit your planting in is into the niche that is already there. So the best trees are things such as oak trees, but these can grow really big and we don't want our trees to cause problems for our neighbours or for other people. So smaller species such as blackthorn, hazel or goat willow are really great for small spaces and smaller gardens. And then as a medium sized option, if you've got a slightly bigger garden, you can plant things such as hawthorn, holly, yew, field maple or elder trees are of really good size. So tree planting is not only good for the environment, it is so good for our well-being, our fitness and our mental health. Getting muddy and getting your hands dirty, making a difference is such a great feeling. and I 100 million thousand percent recommend it. Not only will you be actively helping nature, but you will be helping yourself to be more connected to our natural world. And that is something that has never been so important. Brilliant. Thanks, Katie. I'm sure everyone feels very enthused by your infectious passion for trees. I know I am. And uh, hopefully we'll start to see lots of lovely new trees going up soon. Uh, now I'm going to hand over to Ros Leclerc, who's our Senior Legacies Officer here at the Trust, who's going to tell us a bit more about the Tree of Life, situated at our Fingering Howick Nature Reserve. Thanks Zoe. So my name is Rosalind Leclerc and I work with Lizzie Stewart in the Legacy Team for Essex Wildlife Trust. But as well as our Legacy work, we also oversee the new and exciting Tree of Life. So this is a beautiful and elegant copper tree that has been mounted onto the centre wall at our Fingering Howick Nature Discovery Park. And we're hoping that people would like to use it as an opportunity to celebrate um, important occasions in their lives or they celebrate their love of nature, or to remember a loved one. So a special occasion could be anything. It could be a wedding, anniversary, birthday, engagement, retirement, long service award, even Christmas. We've all got those times when we don't know what to buy people, and we think, you know, is there anything that we can buy that's a little bit different? Well, this ticks that box, and at the same time, you'll be funding our work at Essex Wildlife Trust. So if you purchase a bronze leaf for example you could be potentially helping us to fund five sets of coastal cleanup equipment to support running our beach cleanups around our reserves alternatively you could be helping to fund approximately five bat boxes that go on our reserves if you were to purchase a gold leaf you could be helping us to fund four kilograms of insect focused native wildflower seed mix or buy a new fill gate all of these things are really important and they're things that over time we have to purchase so please have a look when you next visit the centre and see what you think. If you're interested, then take a look at our website 
All of the information is there, including if you want to proceed the form that you need to fill out. It's really, really easy. And feel free to phone us if you've got any questions. Thanks, Roz. It's a, it's a really great way to be able to remember people or celebrate an achievement. And knowing that it's doing good for wildlife too and benefiting future generations is a great tribute to that special person in your life. So now it's time for a springtime wander with McBraden Bones, our landscape conservation officer for the southeast, who's going to talk to us about the beauty of trees in this season of new life. Just walking up to an old boundary oak on the edge of one of our meadows. I say old. For an oak, it's only a baby. It's only about 150-odd years old. Youngster, really. I'm just starting to look at the look up into the crown. You can still see all the branches, all those contorted, convoluted limbs. But what's really exciting is the buds are just starting to open now, just swelling. I'm reminding us that this tree has been playing this waiting game. It's starting to come back into its own. I think that's the thing with trees, is that they have this sense of patience. They just sit and hang out in the winter, waiting. Playing a long game, I think. It's always been a bit of an inspiration for humans. Perhaps that's why we thought trees were so special. And that sign of spring returning and coming back to life, that we've made it through the worst of it. Certainly had this year. I think the lovely thing about these old trees as well is that whilst they're really old, very soon those buds will open and these tiny, perfect young leaves will appear. These little tiny miniature leaves, bright green, just ripe and ready for a summer. Out of this thing that's so old, see this this new growth, this baby leaf coming off this veteran of a tree. It's just a fantastic combination of the old and the new. I think that's part also of what makes trees so timeless. That kind of sense that they're neither old nor young. And of course there's the famous phrase about oaks spending a third of their life growing and a third of it living and a third of it dying. So even when they appear to us to be dying, they're not really dying. They start to lose branches off the top because they've got so massive they can't sustain their own bulk anymore. What they will do is just what's called retrenching. They'll shrink back to a smaller, younger state like they were 200 years ago. I like to think when I'm shrinking as I get older that's what I'm doing, but probably not. But definitely a sign of spring is soon upon us things will be over the birds are creeping around in the trees looking for suitable nesting sites so they know what's coming through the trees of course the trees have always known just wandering up an old ditch line now see what i can see there's some fantastic old trees in here there's an old coppice stall that's a tree that's been cut down right to its base and then regrown new shoots from that. 
but this hasn't been cut for I don't know 70 80 years so it's enormous again all around the base it's all rotten and hollow absolutely teeming with wildlife all those other things that have hibernated in this tree while the tree itself slept they'll be waking up too very soon now the sap will start rising those buds will start to swell up more and more they'll open some trees will flower first so they'll get little blossoms some will grow leaves first all at different times oak trees are one of the last to come into leaf although ash is usually after that which uh, cast some doubt on the old phrase oak before ash in for a splash ash before oak in for a soak so my experience is always the oak first but maybe that's just my experience there's some feathers around the base of one of these trees another sign of spring coming the birds are molting growing fresh feathers, all the males will be growing their fancy feathers to show off to the females don't we all definitely, definitely there is a buzz in the air definitely a buzz spring's coming guys the trees know it can't wait me neither thanks Bones and now it's time for our question of the week. This week submitted by Grant, who asks, why do bluebells only seem to thrive in ancient woodland? And at what point does a woodland become ancient? Here's Bill Godsafe, one of our rangers, to tell us more. Ancient woodland is defined as any area of land that has been under continuous tree cover since at least the year 1600. After that date, we began to see the beginnings of modern forestry in this country and the establishment of plantations. But if the woodland was present before 1600, it's likely to have been there for hundreds or even thousands of years before. Bluebells are a woodland plant. They depend on a mixture of light and shade, so when the plants emerge in early spring, it's light on the woodland floor and the flowers appear once leaves are appearing on the trees. If you plant them in a field, say, they don't last very long because they don't get the shade at the right time. The reason that bluebells only seem to thrive in ancient woodlands is because they take a very long time to colonise new areas and to become established. That's because the seeds are relatively heavy, so they don't disperse in the wind like some other seeds, and so they take several years to germinate. So now you know. Thanks, Bill. And if you have a wildlife question you've always wanted answering, then please send it through to us either by email or through one of our social media platforms, and we will choose one to answer on the next episode. So that just about brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, don't forget to leave us a five star rating and give us a little review to help us reach more wildlife lovers out there. 
We're going to leave you today with a little poem read by Karen Dixon, our corporate coordinator, from the book Overstory by James Lovelock. So until next time, stay safe and stay wild. Earth may be alive, not as the ancients saw her, a sentient goddess with a purpose and foresight, but alive like a tree, a tree that quietly exists, never moving except to sway in the wind, yet endlessly conversing with the sunlight and the soil, using sunlight and water and nutrient minerals to grow and change, but all done so imperceptibly. That to me, the old oak tree on the green, is the same as it was when I was a child.